0: Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris,
2: and I'm Angie.
0: And today, again, we actually have the Whitley Gold Award winner, Dr. Paula Kahumbu, who is the CEO of Wildlife Direct. I just—it's a great honor, Paula. Thank you, and welcome.
1: Thank you so much. So great to be here with you, Chris and Angie.
0: Oh, this is we, we've been thrilled and doing these interviews, these Whitley Award winners, just all conservation heroes. Each story that we've covered, it, it's just it, it hits me in the heart. It, it's just it, it drives me and Angie, and what we do in trying to spread the conservation message. And then telling your stories is just an honor for us. So, I think just to, to start it off, if you can just explain, you know, your role there, you're in Kenya. I'm in New Zealand, Angie's in Florida, (laughs) all different times, but this is just such an amazing uh, time to talk to you. What you do uh, with Wildlife Direct?
1: Right. Well, Wildlife Direct is a Kenyan-based conservation organization. We also have an office in the US, Um, but our role here is really to change hearts and minds and laws. So that Africa's wildlife can endure, and you can imagine on this continent it's the last continent with all the megafauna are still intact, although there are a lot of challenges. Uh, we feel that the future of africa 's wildlife is vital, and it cannot be done without Africans being on board uh, for the longest time. you know wildlife conservation in Africa has been seen as a work that's responsible. It, for the longest time, you know, saving Africa's wildlife has been seen as the responsibility of big international organizations. And that clearly is not working. Now elephants are on the endangered list. African forest elephants are critically endangered. Our lions, cheetahs, many other predators are in dire straits. Even giraffes are now endangered. So our goal is to enlist African people through a movement um, to know about wildlife, to care about wildlife and uh, to take actions to save it. A part of that means changing the laws and so a big part of our work has been advocacy, changing policies and laws and mindsets. We have three big programs. (laughs) One of them is literally fighting wildlife crime and uh, fighting against policies and activities that are threatening wildlife in their landscape. So it could be land-related advocacy. Mm -hmm. The second big area is changing the narrative for conservation. Uh, really putting Africans and African stories and voices at the heart of the conservation effort. And finally, it's looking at future generations, working with children. Um, We have this crazy idea that children have a lot of power, that uh, every child can make a difference. And so our education program is called Wildlife Warriors Kids, and it stems from another TV show that we create in our um, Uh, One of the major aspects of our work is making television content. And so children get to watch the television content and then do activities in their school compounds and come to the national parks and protected areas with us to learn about science, to learn how to interpret nature, to explore, to discover for themselves. And that's probably one of the most exciting things about Wildlife Direct. It's not just one area. We have these three really exciting areas um, and all of them keep me very busy and very hopeful about the future of wildlife in Africa.
2: Oh, Dr. Paul, it's just so inspirational. I mean, going through the list of all the programs that you're you've worked through throughout the throughout the many years that you've been a conservationist, and now you're recognized as the most important and recognizable woman for conservation in Africa. I just got goosebumps when I said that, Uh, being a woman myself. And I mean, that is just incredible. And I was wondering if you could touch on a little bit on your background and how you were able to get into Wildlife Direct and um, perhaps some inspiration for other listeners out there like myself who have goosebumps and say, I want to do that. I want to be her.
1: You know, thank you for that. It's actually uh, uh, a surprising thing to me to hear that people tell me that I'm one of the most recognizable or the most recognizable woman in conservation in Africa. It's, it's a huge responsibility and, and in some <laughs> ways. But,
2: yeah, like, what, what, what do they say in Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, you have to be very careful. So this morning I wrote a post on Facebook where I questioned the naming of our species. So, you know, Wildlife in Africa is named after many of our colonial explorers uh, mm-hmm. who came in the 1800s. So our zebras, our monkeys, uh, so many of our antelopes are named after people like Livingstone or Grant or Thompson. Grant.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Grabby's uh, zebra is my favorite.
1: It's, yeah, so it's an amazing animal. And I made a comment about the fact that this is still going on, that most of the research being done in, in Africa is still being done by people from who are not from Africa. and and so it's being perpetuated, not intentionally in a bad way, but it's just being it's being it's been perpetuated, and there are consequences, which means people are certain people are being alienated. Africans, I feel, are being alienated from nature, and and this sparked a huge, huge argument on on my Facebook timeline, because there are there are so many people who feel quite strongly about it, um, and others who feel that. Doesn't matter who discovers an, an animal or a species; they should have the right. And um, and I think that this issue of equity and um, equality in conservation in science is an issue we cannot ignore. So I grew up loving wildlife. Uh, all of us here in in Kenya, you know, we we had so much wildlife around us all the time, and that made me know from a very early age that all i want to be is a conservationist i want to be a scientist and i i just want to enjoy studying animals because it gives me great pleasure you know it's uh it's a luxury to study wildlife nowadays with so many animals disappearing it's a luxury to be able to just do that and not take any other responsibility i was studying elephants and elephants are phenomenal species you know it's even it's a hundred times bigger (laughs) luxury to study elephants of all species right and um um i i realized soon as i was doing my phd i realized that it's futile studying animals if we can't save them and saving them is not simple it's very complicated there are social there are legal there are economic uh, barriers all over the place so it's quite a minefield and I moved from doing science into advocacy, um, kind of by osmosis. I didn't intend to, but it's what happened. If I want to save these animals that I've fallen in love with, I've got to be something of an activist. And this work has taken me from being a scientist, to being a communicator, uh, to being an educator, and, um, and also a negotiator. And I, I won't say I'm very good at everything. <laughs> there are <clearly> some areas <laughs> Major development like diplomacy. I need to learn some skills in some of these areas. Uh, but what I have learned by being a Kenyan at the front line and fighting for our wildlife and our nature, I've discovered that I'm not alone. There are many, many people, not just in Kenya but across the continent, and it's it's overwhelming how many people want to be part of this journey. That's why I wrote a proposal to um, the Whitley trust saying I don't I don't want to just be doing this work on my own I want to create a facility that allows anybody anywhere to get involved and so the wildlife justice desk that we want to create the idea is how do we get anybody who's interested how do we give them an opportunity and a platform to engage to help save animals because I don't think people just want to love animals for the sake of loving them people want to have meaning in their life they want to be able to say, I planted those trees or I saved that national park and I protected this species. I think it's a, it really is a luxury that has only recently been recognized by local people in Africa that, yeah, I don't have to be David Attenborough. As amazing as he is, <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> he's out of our reach. Yeah. I can be a child in a village at the coast. And I can save a bush baby. And this happened with one of our schools. A little girl rescued a baby bush baby, which is a tiny little, you know. Uh,
2: so cute. Pra- I, I just yeah. told Chris uh, on a recording we did last night for a podcast. I said, we need to do bush babies. They're just mm-hmm.
1: precious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're so talkative and they're, they're adorable. Um, but very few people know anything about them because they're nocturnal. And and this little girl saved this bush baby, and the school was writing to us, sending us photographs. Like, what is this thing? They have no wow. idea what the animal is, even though they live with it in their environment. And uh, and we were able to get the animal rescued. It's it's something that the the school then recognized the little girl. They told us her name, and we sent them um, we sent her some gifts to to recognize her. <laughs> You know, her action. And you know, it's huge. All the schools now, all the kids want to be able to do something and say, you know, I want to be recognized as a hero as well. And and it's very natural. It's probably the most natural thing that we can do as people. Um, finding the way is hard. It's not obvious. Sometimes it's not obvious. Until you do it, it's not obvious. Mm -hmm. Even when I started making films, people told me that I was crazy, that it would never work that it was a flash in the pan idea, that um, um, Kenyans wouldn't watch wildlife television if it was made by Kenyans. They'll only watch it if it's made by National Geographic or BBC. And sometimes you just have to plow through that and ignore all the naysayers and just do it and prove it for yourself. Not everything works, but sometimes things work so exceptionally well that they become entrenched. So now wildlife filmmaking has, is becoming quite a thing in Kenya. You know, it's like we're attracting a lot of film crews who want to work with local, never happening before. So it's, it's very exciting. It's happening, maybe not fast enough. I'm still frustrated at how yeah. Yeah. slow things move. Uh, but it's things are shifting, things are changing. And nowadays I see people um, trying to save parks, Mm-hmm. conservancies species uh, reporting on threats to habitats and um, ecosystems in a way that we never ever saw it before so i'm really excited that we've catalyzed this level of consciousness and and willingness for people mm-hmm. to actually take action
0: i am um, so doing this podcast for the last three years and I, and I just had the honor of speaking to a group of about 50 volunteers here in new zealand that help um sanctuary mountain they help maintain it's one of the the few areas on earth that has predator proof fences to protect native wildlife and and a lot of people come out and help maintain the fences and and maintain uh, the large park it really is dawning on me you know in the last few months or maybe the past year angie and i have have interviewed experts and and done it is grassroots conservation is how we're going to get out of this mess is what I'm starting to see and believe. And this is what I told them. I, I told them you're heroes. You dedicate your time. You are preserving your backyard. So one of the things that really stuck, stuck out with me, listening to your story is, you know, Africans themselves should take the lead in securing the future of the continent's wildlife. Is, is that how we're going to get out of this mess? This, this we're, you know the world around us. The news isn't great, but you know I told your story too. I, I showed all these Whitley Award winners. I'm like, look, I'm just speaking to these people this week. Look what they've done. Look what they've done. So I was giving them hope. As I said, everything's crumbling around us. You know, in the environment. Yep. But is that you know from your viewpoint and from what you're doing with Wildlife Direct? Is that how we're going to save elephants and rhinos and pangolins and, and your wildlife in your area of the world and, and elsewhere
1: um, I think there's a couple of things that really are the the, the secret sauce yeah. <laughs> and the ingredients they obviously have to be the right kind of le- there has to be the right kind of legal framework it's got to be there without it, everything you do could Evaporate in an instant. So you have to have the right legal framework. And that legal framework uh, is developed by the people in power. And those people in power, how they engage with the populace matters. In Africa, democracy is quite new. And so, and, and I think that's why we have a little bit of a problem that when we had dictators, which was not so long ago, for Kenya, just less than 10 years ago, we had dictators. And that meant if you wanted to do conservation in this country, all you've got to do is find your way to the president. Well, that's all you got to do. That person can shake their whisk and things will change. That's not happening anymore. Now you actually have to follow uh, much more of a democratic process. And that means you need to win the hearts and minds of people. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. The people are pushing for the leadership to change, to adopt different practices. Um, we have elections next year in Kenya. I've already been approached by several parties. They want a green manifesto. <laughs> they want me to be associated. I can't that's go them. Awesome. party or I'm in that party, but I can help them to design a green manifesto, which they believe is important. And, and so that's where I see, that's where change is happening. They are gonna use their green standing as uh, a pull for uh, their electorate. That to me, that's really, really powerful. Um, if we're able to, to achieve a situation where the public are able to engage and participate in these initiatives, then absolutely grassroots efforts will really transform everything. Kenya is almost, I would say Kenya is somewhere in between. Uh, we have policies and procedures which say the public must participate. Our constitution is fantastic. It's all about public participation. But then the practice, the actual practice of engaging the public is still it's still a fight. You can see it every day. I mean, we have to go to court sometimes to demand the right to sit at the same table. And have that conversation with with the lawmakers of the country and that's because they're used to a totally different approach and they're being dragged kicking and screaming uh, to the table to work with civil society or to work with with the general public um but at the end of the day you know everyone really does want to look good everyone d- really does want to be seen as having done the right thing so so things are shifting uh, but it's just a bit painful to get to that that point. Um, and so, Yes, grassroots is going to be, um, it's going to be everything, but it depends on the legal framework of every country. Well, yeah,
2: Dr. Paula. looking uh, through a lot of your accomplishments, uh, there does seem to be ongoing evolution of legal work and policy. And so I know you've done so many successful programs uh, through Wildlife Direct, such as Hands Off Our Elephants campaign the eyes in the courtroom. And then you even helped to work with the government to burn Kenya's entire stock of ivory um, several years back. Can you touch on what it's like to go go up against some of these hardships and and, uh, the poachers and the cartel? And I mean, that's a, a that's, that's not an easy fight to fight. And how do you get the strength to do that? And, and what have you learned while, while working through this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> what easy questions. <laughs>
0: Sorry.
2: <laughs> I want to be you. So I'm trying to get into your mind and figure out how does one, I mean, I get one negative comment on, uh, on social media and I, you know, I go and rock back and forth and cry for a little while. So, I mean, I can't even imagine going up. I mean, the, the we all, we all are very familiar with poaching being this huge problem and, and cartel. I mean, it's run by people we don't even see in money. We, we couldn't even imagine to, to have right. or hold. So it's, I'm just, I, I'm just really impressed by how you get the strength to do that and, and, and fight for justice for the animals. And
1: uh, you know, it's, you know, uh, at, the, at the heart of it all is, is being strategic. There, there is so much that needs to be done. There's so much that needs to be done. And um, sometimes we find ourselves, uh, almost like punching in all directions in the dark because you don't even know where the target is, right? Um, and being strategic, I learned from a, an amazing professor in the States who, who said to me, when I, when I was struggling to um, address the problem of wildlife crime in Kenya and the poaching of elephants in particular, that was what we wanted to stop. And there is everything from a poacher who has a gun and who's shooting an animal over there to a guy on the other end who's buying ivory and giving his wife a gift for, for her birthday. So there's everything in between. Where, where do you take on this system? Um, and I made a, a presentation at a conference in the States and, the, and my co, uh, co-speaker uh, was laughing at me. Um, his name was Dan Ariely. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dan Ariely. He's a professor at um, Rutgers University and he studies behavioral economics. And he, so he studies why people do what they do. And I said to him, you know, our goal is to change the law and make it so painful for somebody if you get caught that you won't even dream of, of doing it, right? We want high penalties. Um, and he just laughed and he said, yeah, you do know it's not going to work. And and then I and then I was like, oh, no. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've so simplified everything to the point that it's meaningless. And so I had to sit down with him and talk to him. And he he's explained to me some really interesting things that, you know, the reason why people do what they do uh, is driven by three things. One, it's your benefit, right? It's a profit or it's some kind of a, a, you know, a benefit in like money. Secondly, um, people do things because they want to look good, right? And so it's their ego. And the third reason why people do things is because of their faith. So many people will make decisions and do things because of their faith. And so he said, and if you looked at that and if you you really got to understand why do poachers poach or why do traffickers traffic, you know, which part of these three things is it? And if it's about the profit, then you've got to go after them and make it unprofitable for them. Mm -hmm. You've got to make it so costly that it's just not in their interest anymore, which is very different when you're dealing with somebody who's doing something because of they want to look good. Right. It's a very different approach. So that that taught me a lot of interesting lessons. And then the other person who I spoke to said to me, um, "So we want to we want to stop the poaching of elephants. Uh, ivory is kill, is t- captured from elephants which are killed all across the continent. They move through Kenya through this very narrow pipeline. They go through the port of Mombasa and it gets out into the rest of the world, disappears and ships all over the place." And he said to me, um, "Before you start trying to find a way, because I because I thought, well, if the port of Mombasa is your." is your bottleneck then let's go after the port of Mombasa and let's go and sit there and stop everything <laughs> going through there he said you first got to ask the question why isn't more ivory going through that pipe what's in the way of more ivory going down that pipe and and so he was basically saying try and find the pinch point where a small investment is going to make a big difference if it's, if the system is already squeezed somewhere you can probably squeeze it further. And that was a very, very interesting and insightful. So we we felt that um, everything we know is that poachers poach, it's not just for profit. It's because they can get away with it. And we want to stop them from killing the elephants because seizing the ivory is, is already too late. The animal's are already dead. Mm-hmm. So we felt we have to do something about the detection of poachers. And that's why we drove the campaign around Um, shining a light on the failures in the system. It was really the law enforcement system. It wasn't just throwing more money at a system that's not working. It was identifying where was the problem. The problem was people were getting arrested and they were getting released. Court cases were failing. Poachers were back out there poaching again. So we went after the court system. That's, That's really what Geared everything up, like okay, we need new laws, we need better laws, we need better practices, we need we need specialized prosecutors, we need better systems of um, handling the court cases, and that's that's what really made a big difference.
0: So, Dr. Paul, one question I'm just dying to ask, obviously, is how are elephants doing in Kenya? I know you mentioned the forest elephants. We, you know, we know they're critically endangered, but this poaching crisis that we find ourselves in, your work. I'm just curious to see today in 2021, where we are with the elephants.
1: You know, so, um, elephants, as you know, are animals that once roamed the whole continent. Actually they roamed the whole world at one point. I mean, there were, there were dozens of species of elephants, Our modern savannah elephants are now restricted to pockets around Africa. And East Africa is one of the places which has a lot of elephants. And Kenya has around 35,000 elephants. Our elephants actually are doing fine. Their numbers are increasing. And that's because of this massive investment that's been made in protection um, and stopping the poaching. Because poaching really was decimating elephants. Um, The challenge we have now is that you've got A growing population of elephants and elephants are incredibly clever animals. They know they need to move and they know where they want to go and they have institutional memory about how to go wherever it is that they need to go and so elephants are now roaming over across the land and into places where there are people and this is now the number one challenge we have is elephants and humans coming into conflict with each other. It can be deadly, as you can imagine, you know, elephants wandering into farms, people trying to chase them off their farms, people getting injured, sometimes even killed. Um, Some of our elephants are incredibly well known and they've been studied for decades. And in particular, in the south of Kenya, just at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro is a population of around 2000 elephants. Those elephants have risen from 400, so they're doing really well. Full of babies, it's one of the most amazing places to see elephants anywhere in the world. Every single elephant is known by name. (laughs) Every relative, cousin, aunt, sister, brother, mother, father—you name it. Those elephants are incredibly well known, and they live in the Amboseli National Park, and they move in and out of the park on a daily basis. So. Elephants need water on a daily basis, especially if they have calves, but males don't. And males move quite large distances. Sometimes even in a day, they can move 40 kilometers to go and look for browse. So they need browse to build their bones and especially their tusks. And this movement of elephants is causing a lot of conflict. Um, Even though we know elephants move, we've mapped their movements, uh, we know where the elephant corridors and dispersal areas are. The problem is that People are moving into the same landscape and they're starting to farm. And when it was small scale, uh, local people with their cattle and their goats, it wasn't such a big problem because the elephants and those livestock can coexist. But it's when people put up electric fences and start planting plantation crops like oranges and avocados, lettuce and vegetables, uh, we now have this major crisis of huge developments inside the elephant dispersal areas, which Actually, threaten to block the movement of elephants, and you can imagine if elephants can't move, then they become hostile. They become very defensive, um, and they start to destroy things around them. And that's what's happening. So right now, I'm in a I'm in a um, a very difficult situation. There is a there is a huge development happening in Amboseli. The <laughs> the owners of this development are. We don't even know who they are, to be honest. There are papers there are names on a piece of paper, but we don't know who these people are and we've gone to court together with other organizations. we've been threatened. Um, I've been accused of con not I've been accused of contempt of court, which actually if i if I lost the case, I would go to jail mm-hmm. um, And so these people are fighting back to prevent us from upholding the law which says you cannot grow avocados in an elephant dispersal area. Um, and as I said earlier, you know if the laws are not in place, then you have a real challenge. And our law, laws are at two levels, at the county level, so local level and at the national level, and they're not matching, and that's the problem. So we've created a, a, a very potent explosive situation. Um, right now, those elephants the most famous elephants in the world are at risk. Mm. And so this is a, a, a reason for us to shine a light on that particular case. You know, the the movement of those elephants is so critical, but the land is so chock, choked up with development that the remaining space for them to cross a major highway is only 85 meters wide. So mm. you can, it, all you'd need is one person to come and put a farm in that 85 meter wide, tiny little, you know, pinch point, and mm-hmm. and you've lost the migration of elephants. Um, so so keeping land open between the national parks, I think that's going to be our number one priority for elephant conservation across Africa, not just in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that
2: visual is just really, really striking. I know here in Florida, we we talk a lot about wildlife corridors, going um, overpasses and underpasses. And we've been lucky enough that several have been in place. And now it's really fun. They have video cameras there and they can watch which animals are migrating through and crossing under or over these little corridors. And I think it's helping the public realize how important they are, to, especially yeah. these the lot of the nocturnal wildlife that you wouldn't normally see. You don't even really know is in your area, but then you can watch these wildlife corridor cams and see, and see them and and appreciate them and want to keep fighting for them. And so there definitely is hope, but once you, it all all goes back to to policy, like you mentioned, and uh, education policy, those types of things. And, and being the gold award winner um, for the Whitley conservation fund is of course, I would imagine very incredible. It's like, the green Oscar, right? Uh, so how will you and your team utilize the, the resources and the grant money that you've earned through this to help continually to fight for justice for elephants and the people of Kenya?
1: Well, the Whitley uh, Gold Award is a huge accolade. It's um, super exciting and and uh, telephones have been ringing nonstop. Yes, I know. With us, is great. Because what the reason that we applied for the fund was to develop an environmental justice desk. And the idea of this desk is to allow us to support organizations and individuals who are across the country, uh, also doing fighting to save wildlife, but finding all kinds of barriers in their way. And um, as, as an organization that's been successful in running campaigns and doing advocacy, a lot of people come to us and ask us to take on problems. Some of these problems, are huge. Like, you know, stop a barge from destroying the coral reef. You know, we're talking of multinational issues, huge crises. And some of them are small. Somebody says to me, you know, there is a beetle that's arrived in Nairobi and it's eating the palm trees. We need to stop this beetle before it becomes a problem. So so we have everything in between pollution problems, uh, deforestation problems. Um, And Wildlife Direct just cannot respond to all of them so we want to create this amazing desk that will be manned by lawyers who will advise anybody who calls in on what they can do and how they should deal with their case there are government agencies there are government complaints mechanisms they're just not being used because people don't trust them and Sometimes maybe the reason why people don't trust them is because the government doesn't respond. So we are going to partner with the government agencies. And I've already um, been able to get two major agencies on board. So the National Forest Service and the Environmental uh, Management uh, Service. So It's called uh, NEMA, National Environmental Management Authority. Oh, the power's back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to plug in my phone right now so I don't go, it doesn't die. Um, yeah, so these two, two agencies, the, um, the National Management Authority, and, um, have agreed to partner with us. And what that means is that they will receive all the complaints that we will collate for them and they will put them through their own system and feedback to us what happened. And that will, I think, give citizens huge confidence that their issues are being addressed, they're being addressed by the right authorities. We'll also train people on how to lodge their complaints on what their rights are, we'll provide toolkits. Um, So a big part of this is going to be education so that people don't feel so defenseless and so helpless, which has been I think the reason why so many bad things are happening. People just feel like there's nothing I can do, I'm too small, the problem's too big and nobody cares anyway. Um, so I think we're going to shift that significantly through this amazing uh, support that we got from the Whitley Fund.
0: I, it, just, uh, conservation is so complex and, and, and this is such an amazing interview. Thank you for what you're doing. I, you've really, I think opened my eyes and Angie's eyes a little bit more to the legal side because, you know, we were talking about maybe we need to, to discuss this a little bit more in the podcast because it's not just putting up a fence and keeping animals safe like we see here in New Zealand. That's effective, but that's for birds and, and reptiles and stuff. But when you're dealing with large megafauna, that's really hard. Being respectful of your time, I, I know you're very busy. You've been doing lots of these interviews. One thing we wanted to ask is about your, your show, Wildlife Warriors. That is, what is, I'm trying to get this right, Wildlife of Africa for Africans made by africans is there if you could talk a little bit about the show <laughs> but then also is there okay. any way we can watch it is there any way where, where we oh, can yeah see you in action yeah
1: so so um and thank you for that i mean wildlife warriors is a it's a tv series it's actually the third tv series we've made mm-hmm. um maybe the second one we've made from scratch um the idea behind wildlife warriors is that if you watch wildlife documentaries anywhere in the world, wildlife documentaries about Africa, it's very, very hard to find any Africans or people of color helming those shows. Um, we are often depicted as poachers, bad guys, or, or very, you know, subservient, you know, people running around, maybe driving or whatever. Um, and it doesn't reflect the situation on the ground. We have phenomenal experts. people who are flying helicopters, who are darting elephants and, you know, tracking endangered animals or veterinarians, these incredible people in every sector of wildlife conservation across Africa, but especially here in Kenya. And I'm not sure what it is, but we have a massive number of uh, amount of expertise in the country. And we wanted to see, uh, and maybe it's an experiment, Is, is the role model important? We think it is. We think that the messenger is just as important as the message. And so we created Wildlife Warriors after a different show that was hugely successful. We had At that time, I had no money. And I had this crazy idea that Kenyans needed to see wildlife documentaries because at that time, there weren't even wildlife documentaries, any wildlife documentaries on national television. And the TV stations wouldn't give me space. They were just like, this is, this is stupid. Nobody will watch it. You're wasting our time and our money. So we brought in documentaries from National Geographic and the first documentary went on air and uh, the Internet just blew up because Kenyans were suddenly like, wait, wait a minute. That was filmed in Kenya. That's amazing. (laughs) And it was a film about elephants and poaching, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, It translated into such a massive and long conversation about what was happening to our elephants. And so the TV station said, can you get us some more of these kinds of documentaries, which we did. Um, but then Kenyans started saying, but hang on a minute, where are the Kenyans? <laughs> you know, it was really getting quite aggressive. Why are there no Kenyans? And you, don't we have scientists? And so we said, well, let's try and do something. We had no money. So we sat on a bench, myself and my host. i got this beautiful, very famous news anchor as my host for the show. And we got an expert from somewhere and we would have these conversations. It was it was aired at 10 o'clock at night on a Tuesday. Everything that, that would destroy this show, was all the, all the ingredients yeah. were there. But yes. actually, it was a huge hit. We had like 5 million people watching, Wow! two people sitting on benches chatting about animals. Yeah. And that revealed that there was an appetite and that we had really underestimated it for donkey's ears. There was an appetite for information and conversations about wildlife. And so Wildlife Warriors was born from that success. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, how can we now bring people the pictures of the animals? Cause just seeing people on a bench is not that entertaining. Mm-hmm. And so we, but we didn't have a you know, trained people in Kenya. I don't know if you're aware that you know, there, there are no film crews in Africa
0: wow.
1: of Africans making films about our wildlife. So wow. there's no experience, there's no knowledge. right? So we had to start from scratch. I had to train a crew they're very good in their camera work and they do other kinds of documentaries, but now they've got to learn how to film wildlife. They have to go on boats and film sh- whales. They have to, um, <laughs> and it was a problem because they all suffer from seasickness. <laughs> we had to go out and film predators and elephants and rhinos and snakes, things that people are terrified of. Um, but this show season one was so successful. I think that the, the um, magic ingredient was having local Kenyans whose personal stories are really the hook. It wasn't the animal. Everybody in, who watches Nat Geo loves, oh, it's a polar bear or it's an elephant. But actually, Kenyans and many Africans are very hooked onto who is that person? How did they get to be a, a turtle rescuer? You know, where did they come from? And, and so when you hear this backstory of a young man who grew up in the mountains and came down to the coast and stumbled on a nest of turtles and didn't know what they were and in his quest to find out what they were, fell in love with them and now is this incredible r- t- rescuer of turtles mm-hmm. that story can you know <laughs> it can impact anybody but especially little kids in villages across the country who suddenly realize you know that could be me that's my background that's that's my life that he's describing um and so this series in the first season we had 14 heroes many of them were women so we really want to target girls as well and some of the um you know i'm in every show so i'm the host which was also not intended when i started i was like i w- i spent a year looking for a host and then my crew just said just do it yourself you know what you're talking about just you can do it and that was really hard you know it's not easy but it's so much fun yeah. <laughs> it's like it's given me a new lease of life you know this idea of going out and spending time and getting these stories out of people who have never been on tv before mm-hmm. and most people are terrified of cameras but because we're local people interviewing our own people, they're actually um, very laid back and easygoing and ready to tell us their, their heartfelt stories. I had one man who even cried on camera. And, you know, for, for many Kenyans, seeing that, that raw emotion was so, so powerful. Um, so the series, we ran season one, we got 51% of Kenyans watched it. And then we ran it across wow. Yeah, yeah, it was huge, very, incredible. very successful. Yeah. Then, then it went across Africa, and now we're looking at um, re uh, relaunching it again in different channels, so in Kenya and across the continent. And we're um, we're now in the production of season two, but season one is available for anybody via the Water Bear Network. So that's a really n- nice network for conservation organizations, and there are loads of wildlife documentaries on the Water Bear Network, and it's free for anybody anywhere in the world. So you can watch the entire series on that. And season two, we've finished filming. I'm now in the process of doing the final um, voiceovers and edits. Uh, but it's going to be uh, even more exciting because in season one, we chose the animals that we thought people are familiar with. And they will—they already have a, a sense of a tr- appeal. They love them. Elephants, lions, leopards, uh, um, Okay. We did have snakes. We put in uh, whales. (laughs) The snakes episode was amazing. Um, But season two, we we felt we've got to get a bit more gritty. Mm -hmm. It can't just be a love fest. Now we've got to get down to some of the issues. And so we did several episodes where we talked about uh, what's happening to our forests. And so it's in one episode in particular, there. I couldn't find a happy ending. You know, normally we try and look for a way of ending on a really great high. And in this one, it was, you know, such a painful, difficult story. And we decided we're just going to have to leave it at that because that's the truth. And we don't want to candy code anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and my feeling is that the season two um, had had several reasons why it's going to be so much better than season one. You know, one, my crew is much more experienced. The places we went to, oh, my God, we went to tip of the country to one of the most northern islands of kenya we um we went to some very remote places we talked to local communities we interviewed elders some of our heroes don't even speak english so they are entirely subtitled which we'd never thought of doing before and we did several episodes one episode in particular just on trees which um we'd never anticipated when we started that trees would be an appeal but i think it's going to be hugely appealing to people to actually learn about not just trees but our traditional relationship with trees which i think is going to be super exciting so um we hope to launch sometime later this year and uh i'll let you know how that, that goes it, I'm, I'm really excited about it
2: oh dr Paula, i cannot wait to watch wildlife no. warriors and
0: top of my for list. all our
2: listeners out there we'll we'll put the link to water bear on our show notes so that people can help access it and enjoy it and I cannot wait to hear, like you said Ken- Kenyans telling their story. Uh, it's just connecting with people yeah. it's is what audiences love. I mean here in the states, people in the u s they they we love the reality TV and can't get enough of it and they're just people being themselves they're not actors. it's just all and so storytelling is huge it's I mean, it's yeah. how we all evolved and and so. I'm in love with your story as well, and learning more from you and about you. And so, do you have any advice for people that want to get more involved, and people like myself that want to be you? What's your advice? How how do we do this? How do we how do we help wildlife?
1: Well, that's uh, such a great question. I'm I'm convinced that uh, everything is interconnected, right? So, I had a little boy. Uh, he was eight years old yesterday, I was on a panel and there were all these adults in the audience. And when they asked if anybody had questions, this little eight-year-old put up his hand and he said to me, you know, are you working only in Kenya or, or he said, are you working only in in Africa or are you working in the world? And, and it made me realize, you know, it, it matters. It really matters that we don't just look at our own local situation. And I reminded him that, you know, the trees are all interconnected, that those water of the oceans and the air that we're breathing has been around the world. Um and and I really feel that we need we need everyone in the world to really become environmental global citizens. Mm -hmm. We need everybody to be able to to see whatever they can do, whether it's something small or something big. As organizations in Africa are really struggling, especially now because of the COVID pandemic. Um, So anybody who has um, anything that they can offer to the organizations on the ground, those grassroots organizations, like um, the 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 young men that I, the young man that I mentioned who is saving the turtles, you know that organization with a little bit of money they can save more turtles. Mm-hmm. a lot of organizations will blink out because they can't raise money. But actually, there are organizations all around the world that can support and attract support for those different organizations on the ground. And we use wildlife warriors specifically to shine a light on individuals and their organizations in order to help draw t- attention to them. And in fact, that's the name, that's why we're called Wildlife Direct. It's so that we can create that direct connection. And, um, and we have supported a lot of organizations so far. Many of the heroes of season one have had all kinds of interesting support and benefits and um, uh, gifts, trainings, you name it. So anybody who's interested in supporting what we do, they can they can check us out on the Internet, but they can also directly support any of the people in our videos that they would like to support. I think I think um, content creation is going to be really magic and really important in the future. So sometimes it's it's um, the power of the individuals watching the shows is their ability to share that information with other people um, do something and invite your friends to, to do the same make 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 a difference and do it for somebody for their birthday or something you know like really make it personal. Um, it would be so tragic if we lost animals like elephants and rhinos and giraffes, animals that are beloved all around the world um, just because we didn't make it possible for people to help. So I I think that we have this opportunity and a very important moment in time where the world is reaching these planetary boundaries and we, we owe it to the world to take action as individuals. You can make donations, of course, through the Whitley Fund for Nature, and those funds will support the hundreds of winners who the organization has been supporting over the years. And many of those winners feature in our documentaries. So it's the uh, I think you know if anybody's listening and they are able to make donations through uh, the Whitley Fund for Nature, I think that would be a fantastic way to support the work that we're doing
0: i just you know to start tying this all together, i just your work you give us a lot of hope you give the world hope that we are protecting our wild spaces, and you know, like you said the, these people that you highlight conservation heroes each and every one of them so i just want to say on behalf of our listeners that you know we get the feedback from thank you thank you for what you do you make a huge difference not only to the elephants and and all the other wildlife but in people's lives and in like you know we we are educators so we want to inspire the young generation angie from the very beginning of this podcast said we never knew who was going to be the next jane goodall we don't know who's going to be the next Paula Kahumbu you know, from Africa. We don't know. So we're hoping right. we can reach some of those young voices. But thank you so much for what you do.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I hope I hope that uh, you'll share the link and I'll be able to share it also through, across with, throughout, throughout our networks.
2: Yeah. Yes, Dr. Paula, it's just been an amazing gift for me today talking with you. Once again, I have goosebumps. I will get to Kenya and hopefully maybe you can show me around. I've been dreaming of going to Lewa Conservancy, Wildlife Conservancy there to see some gravy zebras. But uh, the country I know has so much to offer. So supporting here in some years, bring, bring my children so they can uh, experience the wildlife there. And um, you've been just amazing amazing to talk to. And for all of our listeners out there who are as moved as Chris and I are talking to Dr. Paula today, check out, uh, www.wildlifedirect.org. And we will also put other links, um, on how to access wildlife warriors so that we can all tune in. And yes, uh, Here in the States, people have get togethers to watch reality TV. So as soon as I can start having people over at my house, I'm going to have a wildlife warrior watching party and get everybody involved. And we'll all pick our favorite stories and share them. And I encourage our listeners to do the same. And I just want to say from from my heart, um, Asante Sana, thank you so much for being here today. (laughs) Thank
1: you. Thank you so much, Angie and Chris. I really appreciate it.